it and open it to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 34 in a message I've simply entitled The Lord's Supper. And as we look at this passage of scripture, the purpose of it is for us to prepare ourselves to participate in the supper of the Lord this morning. The Lord has given to us two ordinances to observe in the church. One is baptism. One's the Lord's Supper. These ordinances are simply means by which we remember what Christ has done for us. There are occasions whereby we can be reminded of the cross of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection and how that through faith in Christ alone we experience salvation. And this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I want to draw your attention now, if you would, to verses 23 through 34 of this text found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And here to set the context, you need to understand that the church at Corinth was a very immature church. Uh, there are no perfect churches. Now, I, I am from the Atlanta area. I'd lived there for around 17 years, and I was going down one of the little side streets in Atlanta one day, and I came across a church, and on the front of the church it said, The Perfect Church. I'm not kidding you. It's in big letters, The Perfect Church. And I thought, well, I couldn't be a member there because I would ruin it. If you find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll mess it up. Because the reality is we're all sinners, right? And we're all weak at times. And the Lord wants us to grow in our faith and mature as believers. But here in the church at Corinth, many problems exist. As a matter of fact, if you read First and Second Corinthians, you'll discover that they had many problems. Division was a central problem. And did you know that division in a church is a sign of spiritual immaturity? It's a sign of spiritual immaturity. I'm thankful the First Baptist is a unified church. We're united. We're moving forward together. And we want to keep it that way. Isn't that true? Amen? Well, Corinth, they were immature. And to a large degree because it was a, it was a relatively new church. And many of these people came out of rank paganism. And gross immorality was a part of their, not just daily lives, but also of their worship. They worshiped false gods. They worshiped idols. And, and so uh, just very immature and moral. So now that they've been saved, they're learning. They're little babes in Christ Jesus. And it's important that they grow and mature. But you could see the, uh, the evidences of spiritual immaturity throughout the congregation. And one such issue that... Uh, it, exemplified their spiritual immaturity was division. And it was certainly evidenced in the way they were conducting themselves in worship. As they would gather together, especially when they partook of the Lord's Supper, they would have what they called a love feast, an agape feast. And they would bring food and, and gather and fellowship together. Now, that's a good thing, right? Food. We can all agree on that. We all, as Baptists, love food. As a matter of fact, we are not just Southern Baptists. We're Southern Fried Baptists. Amen? I mean, we love to eat. We love to fellowship together. That's a very good thing. But the problem was they would gather together for fellowship and, and they would segment themselves in little cliques. And you had some of the folks who were 
wealthy and they were bringing their food and they would not share their food with others. And then you had poor people, they would come in and they hardly had anything to eat and they, they would be practically starving while those who were well-to-do, they had plenty to, and left over, but they wouldn't share. And, and some were so immature that they were even drinking and getting drunk. So this was a very problematic church, very immature. And then when they would get to the supper of the Lord and, and uh, it had become a side issue. And they were participating in the Lord's Supper without being prepared. And as a result, God was disciplining his people. So the Apostle Paul writes to address this very issue. And I want us to look and see what he had to say to them because it applies to us today. Because just as God wanted those people in that day to be holy and pure... And he wanted them to be unified in their purpose, in their faith. And he wanted them to join together to honor him in the Lord's Supper in a way that was dignified and glorifying to the Lord. So too, God wants us to experience the same thing. And we'll see how we can do that by looking at this passage this morning. So hopefully you've made your way there to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 23. And we see, first of all, the picture of the Lord's Supper. Let's look and see what the Bible says here. Look in verse 23. First of all, the picture of the bread comes into focus. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. Which is for you, this do in remembrance of me. Here, uh, Paul points out that Jesus, on that night that he was crucified, as he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples in the upper room, he took a piece of unleavened bread and he broke that bread and he said, This is my body broken for you. So the bread pictures for us the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was being beyond recognition. With a cat of nine tails, he received 39 lashes. Many people never made it to the cross because they were disemboweled from the beatings. We're told in the book of Isaiah chapter 53 that that Jesus was so marred and bruised that no one wanted to look upon him. It was a ghastly sight to see. The beard was even pulled from his face. He wore a crown of thorns on his head. He had been beaten with rods and the fists of men. He had been spat upon, cursed, false accused. He endured six trials before his crucifixion. And then once nailed to the cross, practically naked... He hung there for six hours. And so when we partake of that piece of bread, we're reminded that Jesus' body was bruised and broken so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And that's what the Lord's Supper is about. It pictures for us the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless one who died in the place of sinners. What a vivid picture this is. Now, some people say, well, when you partake of the bread and the cup, the juice, it transforms into the literal 
body of Jesus, the literal flesh and the literal blood of Christ. But the problem with that is the scriptures do not teach it. And there's a big word for that, transubstantiation. It just simply means that the the bread turns into the literal flesh of Jesus and the blood to the literal or the cup to the literal blood of Christ. But again, that's not what, what the Bible teaches. It's a symbol of the body of Christ. It's a symbol of the blood of Christ. It pictures something for us. Not only do we see the picture of the bread, but we see the picture of the cup. Look, if you would, in verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Did you know the word wine is never used in reference to the Lord's Supper? The word fruit of the vine is used. The word cup is used. And I believe the reason this is true is because just as bread was to be unleavened or without any spoilage, any yeast, so too the cup should be without any fermentation, any spoilage. Why? Because unleavened bread pictures the sinless body of the Lord Jesus. Leaven is often used as a picture of sin in the Bible. So the bread had to be unleavened bread. And I believe so too the cup was to be unfermented because it pictures the pure sinless blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so here the word cup is used. You see also in the gospel you see the word fruit of the vine is used. And here the cup referencing The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was spilled out at Calvary. So when they partook of the cup, it reminded them that there was blood shed so that sin could be remitted. Did you know that for our sins to be forgiven, sacrifice had to be made? You see this in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system. All those animals that were slain in the Old Testament pictured Jesus the Christ. He was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, the Bible says, which means that before God even created human beings, he knew that sin would enter to the world through our decisions. And he provided a means whereby reconciliation could be made possible, and that is through his son, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And that's why... John, as he was baptizing there at the Jordan, Jesus Jesus approached him. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is that spotless Lamb. And his blood shed for us enables us to be forgiven, to be cleansed from our sins. You see, it's not through your church attendance that you're saved. You can't be forgiven by just attending church. Now, uh, coming to church is important for believers and even non-believers to hear the gospel. But attending a church service won't save you. You can come every day. As a matter of fact, you can camp out in the foyer. And it will not get you any closer to God. It's not by partaking of the Lord's Supper that you're saved or being baptized that brings salvation. It is when you acknowledge you're a sinner, believe Jesus is the Savior, 
and are willing to turn to Christ to save you, trusting him and him alone for salvation. Now, folks, I'm telling you, I have spoken to folks who've attended church for years. And when speaking to them about their salvation, they are still confused. And I can ask them, if you die and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ today, and he asks you, why should I allow you into my heaven, what will you say? Most of the time, here's what people say. Well, I will tell God I've done the best I could. I tell God that, you know, I go to church and I try to be nice to people. And I try to obey the law. I've never really, I've never hurt anybody. Folks, the problem with that is, it's without Jesus. The problem with that is, you're saying that I, when I stand before God, God is going to take my good deeds and put them on one side and my bad deeds and put them on the other. And, and I believe my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds. And he's going to say to me, come on in. The big problem with that is it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, that if righteousness comes by the law, Christ has died in vain. In other words, if we can be saved by trying to do better, Jesus died for nothing. There's only one way we can be saved. Jesus himself said it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And I want you to know here this morning, if you think that you can be saved by trying to do better, you're sadly mistaken. You cannot do better. Oh, you might be able to improve your life a little bit, turn over a new leaf, but you need more than turning over a new leaf. You need a new life. And that new life comes when you acknowledge you're a sinner and we've all sinned. You believe Jesus is a savior who came and lived without sin, died on the cross, was raised from the dead in victory. And then you, by faith, trust him to save you. When you do that, you become the recipient of his grace. And what a glorious truth that is. And then you begin to grow in your faith and coming to church will help you do that. And being baptized as an act of obedience for the new believer and uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper. That's an act of worship. But salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. And here we see the picture of the Lord's Supper is, is vividly portrayed to us through the bread and through the cup. Someone has said that a picture is worth what? A thousand words. And what a vivid picture we have before us this morning. The bread. Picturing the body. The cup. Picturing the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ spilt for us that we might be saved. Now, let's look at the participants in the Lord's Supper. You'll see that in verse 26. Here we see the identity of the participants. As Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. To whom is he speaking? He's speaking to Christians there at the church in Corinth. These were people who were believers. They had confessed Christ as their Savior. They had been baptized in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And although they were spiritually immature and they struggled a lot, they were still saints. Paul refers to them as saints. So the participants in the Lord's Supper are those people who have by faith trusted Jesus and followed that with believers' baptism and joining the local church. They're part of the body. 
So when we gather today to partake of the Lord's Supper, those of us who know Christ as our Savior and we've obeyed him through believer's baptism, then we come together and partake of the Lord's Supper. Now you say, well, I'm not a believer. What do I do? Well, the Lord has provided this as an opportunity for you to see the gospel pictured in hopes that you will come to realize your need for Christ and be saved. This is for you to see what Christ has done. So if you're here without Christ, we're so delighted you're here. I'm telling you, we're thrilled, as a matter of fact, that you've come to be with us this morning. And we want you to see the same Jesus that changed us and continues to change us is the same Jesus Christ that will change your life, forgive you of your sin. And folks, if, if Jesus can forgive us church folks and all we've done and all the sin that we have committed, let me tell you, for those who don't know him who are here, it's evident that he can forgive you as well. He can save from the uttermost to the guttermost. I don't care who you are and what you've done. He will save you if you'll trust him for salvation. So the identity of the participants are those people who have trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then notice the activity of the participants. We read on in verse 26. It says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what we're doing here this morning. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. Until he comes again. And he is going to come again. You know, I wish he'd come today. I'd be just as happy if he came today. I'm telling you, it would thrill me because I want to see King Jesus. I'm looking forward to spending an eternity with him and seeing his glory revealed and his power and his strength. And, and, and I just tell you, it's going to be a wonderful time. He's coming again. And what we're doing when we partake of this Lord's Supper as participants, we are proclaiming Jesus Christ to this world. Now, there are other ways we proclaim the Lord's uh, crucifixion and resurrection. One is through baptism, the other ordinance. And then we've been commanded by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to go from this place and proclaim the good news of Christ Jesus to our friends and neighbors and family members. All around the world, we are to be proclaiming the gospel. But certainly, we don't want to miss the opportunity of the Lord's Supper because it's the way that we Proclaim his death and resurrection until he comes again. Now we looked at the picture of the Lord's Supper, the participants of the Lord's Supper. Then finally notice the preparation for the Lord's Supper. And this is very important. If you're listening, say amen. Amen. This is very important. Notice with me, there needs to be personal examination. Verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread... Or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. You know what he's saying? He's saying you better be very serious when you come to the table of the Lord. There's something so sacred about this. You don't want to come in here with a careless attitude. You don't want to come in here with sin in your life, partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's very, very serious. And he says in verse 28, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So he says, examine yourself. What does that mean? That means that we say, Lord... Is there any sin in my life as a believer that I need to confess and repent of? Lord, whatever is in my life that should not be there, that is displeasing to you, Lord, reveal it to me 
so that I might acknowledge that it is sin and turn from it in repentance. And that's what we're here to do this morning. We want to be clean before the Lord, don't we, as believers? We're talking about Christians now. Don't come to the table of the Lord with known sin that's unconfessed in your life. It is dangerous. And there is a strict, stern warning here by the Apostle Paul that we are to examine ourselves before we participate in this supper. And that's what we're about to do. Examine ourselves. And he goes on and says, and notice with me in verse 29, for he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. He says, if you just come in a perfunctory way to the table of the Lord, not having examined yourself and dealt with any sin in your life, he said, what you're doing is inviting the judgment of God in your life. Now, when he speaks of judgment here, he's not talking about losing your salvation or being sent to hell. He's talking about being judged in the sense of a child being disciplined by a loving father. The Bible says those whom God loves, he chastens or he disciplines. You say, well, I can't believe that God would do that. Well, are are you a parent? Do you ever discipline your children? If not, there will be a day that, that is coming in your future where you will wish you had disciplined your children. The Bible says that if you fail to discipline your children, it's a sign that you do not love them. And I promise you that God loves us as his children, which means he's going to discipline us if we fail to respond to his conviction of sin. He will begin to discipline us to root that sin out of our lives because sin is destructive. If you don't think sin is destructive, look at the cross. And see what Jesus endured because of sin. Not his own sin, but our sin. He goes on to verse 30 and says, For, the re- for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. What does he mean by that? He says that because you've come to the table of the Lord with known, unconfessed sin in your life, you've done it in a careless sort of a way, not paying attention to what you've been doing, not really focusing on the real meaning. What has happened is there are some of you who are experiencing the discipline of the Lord and that you are physically sick and some have even died. God has prematurely taken them home. Because they have not dealt with sin in their lives. You say, well, that's kind of drastic, don't you think? Why would God do such a thing? God will do it because he loves us. And not only does God love us as believers, he loves the lost. And when a believer becomes a stumbling block to other people coming to faith... God says, it's time you come home. Whenever we begin to put up barriers by our own sinfulness as believers, we become a hazard to the lost coming to faith. 
God will try to correct us through con- conviction and through chastening. But if we, can sin- if we continue to sin, God will move and call us home prematurely. Now, friend, I'm telling you something. God takes this stuff seriously. And you and I have better too. Amen? Now, he does this out of love. He wants to see people saved. He does not want a, a church that's, that's coming in here and not thinking about what they're doing and sin in their lives and partaking to the supper and walking out and living ungodly. And people saying, well, there goes a Christian, but he, he's just like I am. What difference is there in his life? Or, or look at her. She's just like I am. If not worse. See, God loves the world. That's why Jesus died. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that Jesus was sent to die on the cross so we might be saved. For all who believe in him, they could be forgiven of their sins. So it says in a strong word here, he said, you need to examine yourself so that you will not be judged. Verse thirty. 31, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So personal examination is a prerequisite to participating in the supper. And then notice congregational unification is another prerequisite. Look in verse 33. Didn't I tell you earlier that this was a divided church? Did you, do you remember me telling you that this was a divided church? Did you know that Jesus wants us to be united? Do you realize that? You say, well, how is that possible? Look at the diversity. I mean, we all, you know, some are cold and some are hot. Uh, some are, are, are uh, desirous of this type of music, some that type of music. Some like this preaching style, some that preaching style. Some want to wear a coat and tie, some blue jeans. How in the world are we ever going to get together? Let me tell you how we get together. When you get close to Jesus and I get close to Jesus, we get closer to each other. So the closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to one another. And that's how we can be united is when we follow Jesus. Look what he says in verse 33. So then, my brethren, when, it, when you come together to eat, he says, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that you will come together, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining letter I will arrange when I come. The matters I will arrange, he says, when I come. In other words, I'll I'll deal with these other issues when I get there personally. But this is so important. I had to write you this letter to say to you that it's important that you follow the Lord Jesus Christ and you love each other. It's not complicated, folks. Follow Jesus and love each other. And when we come to the table of the Lord, we're uniting together to honor the Lord. And when we get closer to Him and get right and clean before Him, then our relationships with one another will be all that more strong. Now as we participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, What I'm going to ask you to do is spend a few moments in prayer asking God to show you anything that's in your life that might hinder you from participating in the supper. Now, I want to to ask you to to pay close attention. And unless it's an emergency, please do not be moving around.
This is a very sacred moment where we observe the Lord's body and blood as a reminder of the great sacrifice he's made for us. With heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to ask God to show us any sin, whether it be an attitude, maybe a critical spirit. Or a haughty attitude, envy, jealousy, hatred, strife, racism, pride, lust, theft, adultery. Whatever sin that you might be experiencing, friend, I'm telling you, it's time you come clean before the Lord as a believer. Don't let these things be named among you. And if you've done something to someone else, then you need to to correct it. Jesus did not hang on the cross and die so that we continue to sin after we've been saved. His intent is to transform us from the inside out. So any sin that is in your life as a believer, here's what you need to do. Dear God, I confess to you my sin, and you name what that sin is. Don't just say, Lord, if I've done anything wrong, Lord, just forgive me for my sins. No, get specific. You name the sin before God, confess it. That means I agree with God that this is sin. And then you say, Lord, I turn from this sin and I want to walk in obedience to you. 